Welcome to The Culture Factor, where we talk to founders and influential leaders about company culture. We share stories from the C-suite that help executives engage their business from the inside and create a map to transform their culture. Because the truth is, culture eats strategy for breakfast. I want to thank our listeners for joining The Culture Factor and ask that you subscribe, rate, and consider leaving a review. We'd love to hear who you'd like to listen to next. And a thank you to our sponsor, Company Tribes. They have an app and a virtual experience to help keep your tribe together during difficult times like now and business as usual. How strong is your company culture? Reach out to Paul at companytribes.com. Hi, everyone. This is Holly Shannon, your host and co-producer. Welcome to The Culture Factor. We are with the Time Off co-authors. We have John Fitch, the CPO at Voltage Control, and Max Frenzel, the R&D lead at Bespoke. And I just want to point out that I was looking at Amazon today, and Time Off is ranked in a number of different areas, and I wanted to bring that to light, that they're number six in in books in business on health and stress, number 28 in work-life balance in business, and they're also ranked in time management. So I think this will be a very relevant conversation for everybody to have. Um, I would like to introduce uh, John Fitch. Welcome back. I know that we did one podcast together. How are you? I'm doing amazing, and thank you for hosting so many great conversations. We can keep diving deep, and Max is usually my trusted backup to make sure the things (laughs) I say are legit, so I'm I'm (laughs) I'm less nervous this time with Max, my co-author here. (laughs) <laughs> All right, Max friends, well, that's a great introduction. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having us, Holly. And that's John Zett. Thanks for hosting such an amazing show and highlighting such amazing company culture. Thank you. And and thanks for arriving with this great accent so people can tell the difference <laughs> between John and Max. Um, so I'm going to dive in by asking you both to unpack some definitions that are in the book, um, because I think it's important as we go forward with some of our questions to be able to understand um, your viewpoint on on these terms. So you use uh, the terms rest ethic um, and noble leisure frequently in the book. So I'd love for you guys to address that. Um, you also address work ethic, which you know might in many people's minds have a, an obvious definition, but maybe you want to refine that a little bit. So I think we were going to pass to John first to start with rest ethic. Can we just awesome. dive in? Totally. So I think rest ethic and work ethic can be discussed in tandem and a rest ethic is the exhale to use a breathing analogy and a work ethic is ah, I, I, I take in an inhale notice I immediately exhaled because it's necessary if I sat here Holly and only inhaled I would not be on this podcast for very long. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, and, and so a rest ethic uh, is, we, we like that analogy because they're both essential and an intentional oscillation between the two is essential. And all of us as professionals put a lot of energy, a lot of thought, a lot of refinement, and a lot of discipline into our work. And that's awesome. We need to do that to get quality work done. 
but we also deserve to put that same energy, that same intent, that same discipline into time off, into our rest, and hence rest ethic. So rather than me giving you a boilerplate definition, I would say for you and anyone listening, the things right now that energize you, that build up your enthusiasm, that refill your tank, all of those practices put into one bucket would be your, your rest ethic. And, and for it to become a rest ethic, we, our book just reminds you the importance of prioritizing it, protecting it, and being proud of it because it's not just a nice to have. It enables a more calm and creative version of you, which then takes me to work ethic. In our book, we just want you to know that a work ethic is not being a person who is obsessed with busyness or visible busyness. So a work ethic is not being a master at Slack. It's not having an inbox zero. It's not making sure all notifications are answered to. It's simply sticking to your word, getting a great project done and and shipping and doing great creative work when you do decide to be on and, and get something done. So that would be our definition of work ethic and rest ethic. And again, we hope to help you redesign your intentional oscillation between those two. That's a great, great answer. And now you have me thinking that I have to work on my zero inbox problem. <laughs> I'm, I'm not. I'm not. Uh, I, I'm not saying that it, it's it's a problem. But if if that habit is getting in the way of you uh, resting, if it's if it's just, uh, are you, if you're doing it just to stay on top of things, um, my my question to you is 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 that really helping you move the needle on the things that that matter? Right. Absolutely. It's kind of like a problem that it feels like a problem. That's the key issue, right? Mm, mm-hmm. Okay, I will work on that. <laughs> We've already identified my first problem. Um, <laughs> Max, can you share with us a little bit about noble leisure? Sure. And I think a lot of it ties into what John was just talking about. So we wrote a book called Time Off. And I guess a lot of people, when they first hear that, think it might be a book about vacations or, I don't know, sitting on the couch watching Netflix. But it's absolutely not a book about being lazy. If anything, it's really the opposite. And I think busyness and this celebration of hustle and grinding things out and this culture of workaholism, I think it's actually laziness in disguise because it's really hard to pause sometimes and take time to reflect and think about is well is all your hard work actually working is the way you're doing things really getting you results busyness and productivity are absolutely not the same and yeah as john already said like we believe in time off as an investment in your productivity and noble leisure sort of ties into that especially in the concert or context of knowledge work and it goes back all the way to aristotle so if you look at ancient Roman Greece, they were actually celebrating leisure and time off as one of the highest things in society and in culture and the thing you should aspire to. And in Aristotle's hierarchy, rest was not the same as leisure because rest always asks that question, rest for what? And usually the answer is to do more work. 
So rest is just there to support more work. And then work sits in the middle of this hierarchy and work really, it's necessary, but it's only, well, it's for utilitarian purpose. So it's defined through a certain purpose, but ultimately it supports leisure. And that's really this highest goal of, well, Aristotle and his contemporaries. And leisure and this noble leisure is defined through giving you meaning in life. And that's really the key difference. Like, what are the activities that fill your life with meaning? So you might look at a knowledge worker who really cares about what they're doing. And Aristotle would have actually defined that not as work, but as noble leisure in a way. This can be time spent with your family, but it can also be time spent put into a project you really, really care about. So that's where the difference and this definition of noble leisure comes from. I mean, some of rest is really great. And we talk about a lot of pure rest forms in the book as well. But some of it also falls more into this noble leisure category, which to some people might actually look like work. And it's not always easy, but it fills our life with meaning and it energizes us. So when I was reading um, the part from Aristotle's view, um, mm. so I had summed that up as, you know, we, we rest for the sake of work and we work for the sake of leisure. Yeah, I think um, that's a really good summary. Um, so I'm a, a little further, like, so that was like chapter one and then into like maybe chapter two, chapter three, and I'm sort of like paraphrasing as I go here and, and guessing which chapter it was, but to further that conversation. So then you get into religion and how religion elevated the concept of um, that finding work, uh, that that was um, a blessing and that was sacred and that work as a construct that, that it's noble for the church Mm. But then leisure for yourself was more like a sin, if I understood that correctly. Um, and then further along down the line, as we got into industrialization, Ford was looking at that as a construct of creating a classic work week, where now you defined not only what work was for, but it was in a certain time zone. Um, I know I'm getting a lot ahead, and you're probably going to track back, but um, that was sort of a nod to capitalism um, to ensure that people had weekends free to boost the economy. Um, so he looked at it as leisure as profitable leisure. Um, mm. So I know I'm I'm some kind of paraphrasing in some of these, and I hope I'm getting it right. But if I'm not, I'm going to let you correct it for our listeners. But those were sort of the three views that I felt started your book was sort of Aristotle's and then some religion and then the industrial rev revolution. And then we went from there. So maybe you guys want to elaborate a little now that I spoke so much. Sure, Norris. <laughs> uh, so at the beginning of the book, we really look into the history of time off and how we came to actually forget about the value of time off. And as you said, it started with Aristotle. Then we went into sort of this 16th, 17th century. And their religion was really a key driving factor. But it was not really religion itself. It was more religion being used to justify why people should be busy. But really, it was the kind of upper class that was worried about 
the lower classes and the poor people not knowing how to use leisure, not knowing what to do with their free time and being worried that if they have too much free time, they're just going to start, I don't know, rioting. rioting. Exactly, basically. Mm -hmm. So they use religion to justify why um, idleness and leisure are such a bad thing and why work is the most noble thing and the most precious thing you can do. God gave you this time on earth, so don't waste it by slacking off and that over the centuries wormed its way so deep into our culture and we still have it today even though we completely forgot the origin we still have this guiltiness associated with not working and the thing like the idea that something that feels hard must be so much more valuable than something that feels easy. And then, yeah, as you said, we got to Ford later on. I mean, there was a lot of stuff in between, but Ford was sort of the first one who actually realized, hey, there's something wrong with our culture. And he, I mean, his reason to go back to more leisure was very economic. He realized that, well, A, if he gives his workers more free time, Um, he'll get the best workers there are. Like People are going to line up at his factories to work for him. B, people need free time to actually buy the products they're producing. If they're working 24-7 and seven days a week, more or less, they're not going to buy any cars. If you give them a two-day weekend and also fair wages, they can buy the cars that they're producing and really keep the economy going. And also just realize that people work better on less time instead of just grinding things out, they actually think about how to be more efficient and how to get work done in a better way. And also they make much fewer mistakes. So back in, uh, I'd say the 1920s, although I might be making that up, but roughly around that time, like early 20th century, um, he realized that eight hours a day, five uh, days a week, that's a good amount of time for a factory worker to work right? A manual laborer. But it's crazy to think now, and he even made the prediction that that's only the first step in shortening working times. Like he was very, very positive that very shortly those times are going to drop down even further. But now about a hundred years later, it's crazy to think that not only did they not drop, we're back to much longer working hours again. And it gets even worse because we're now not doing factory work, not doing manual labor, but we're doing knowledge work. And your brain tires so much more quickly than, say, physical labor. And also creative work and the work a knowledge worker is really paid to do, it needs a lot more time off. And like you can't go for eight hours straight and doing effective knowledge work as a manual laborer can. So it's crazy to think that we're actually working longer hours than Ford's factory workers did. And we do a type of work that's even less suitable to those long hours. So it's kind of really this crazy issue we have currently in society and this crazy culture in a lot of companies. Hmm. Uh, You make me want to jump forward in my questions now because we're talking about knowledge work and and the hours. Um, So in your book, you discuss uh, Tower Paddle. Uh, how they work a five-hour workday versus an eight-hour workday, and they feel that that's enough time to focus on knowledge work um, and that it forces um, better processes and uh, that 30% reduction in hours actually does not diminish their productivity. Um, He also um, 
comments in there that there's higher retention, less financial pressure, and increased creativity because they encourage entrepreneurship in the in their culture. So maybe you, we should jump forward a little bit in the book since we're talking about hours and there are companies that are kind of looking at their culture and how they work a little differently. I'll, I'll jump in and I, I like to help the audience just reflect and, and ponder. Think about through your career, uh, think about people you've worked with and that whole group of people I want you to segment out and think about those that were highly creative, highly enthusiastic, very calm, and think about what it was like to work with them versus the people that were burnt out or high strung or sleep deprived or slightly neurotic and everything's urgent. And, and just inside, how does, when you think about those people, what, what's the difference of, of what it makes you feel? And, you know, at the end of the day, who do you want to collaborate with? And I, I think about if I'm an entrepreneur, if I'm a leader of any kind, it, what is, what is the, the, the energy of the people I'm working with? And we don't live in a reality where we're no longer, we're, we're no longer cogs in a wheel. I mean, there are some, I'd be, I'd be ignorant to say that there isn't still manual labor there is, but there's a trend that more and more of that's going away and being handed over to robotics and, and machines that are much more precise and accurate. And for the rest of us, what's left is ideas, creativity. And so I, I look at it as if you're an e-commerce company or your product company, like uh, the anecdote you just mentioned, you're really in the business of ideas and creativity. Yeah. And so... Um, your coworkers ideally are very calm, very creative to think about the evolution of your company. Whereas if they bring a factory mindset into it, uh, it, it just doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't, it isn't very reasonable. So yeah, who are the people you want to work with and how do you want them to be? And if you expect them to just uh, work all the time, be a machine, they're not going to be very human. And so I think the more humanity you have inside of your company, uh, the more resilient you are, the more creative you are, the more calm, and therefore the more enjoyable the culture is. And I think ultimately, the more you have of that, the less amount of escapism needed from like, mm. oh, I need to go rest. I need to peel away from work because it's draining versus, yeah, if you're only working four hours, five hours a day, uh, which is more than enough in a creative economy, um, you can invest in your noble leisure and show back up the next day or next week, uh, energized, enthusiastic, calm, creative, which not only makes you better in your work, but likely your, your coworkers around you pick up on that as well. Totally. Actually, just let me add a little bit to that because John, you brought up a really great topic. I think the idea of like automation and machines taking over much more of the busy work. I spend most of my career working on AI and doing AI research. And a lot of people are worried about AI taking over more and more jobs. And I'm not that worried about it. Yes, the job landscape is going to change, but what's going to be left afterwards are much more human jobs. And 
no one's going to out busy the machine. So if you're currently priding yourself in busyness, you might want to rethink. But if you're doing creative work and if you're doing work that requires empathy, then you should really double down on that. And I think every knowledge worker has components of that in their job. And those components will be much, much more valuable in the future. So really creativity and empathy. And I guess creativity is kind of hopefully obvious why that's so important to knowledge workers and why that's so important for innovation. But maybe we should stress the empathy component a bit as well. I think A, good leaders are very, very empathetic. And I'm sure we all know bad leaders who are not empathetic. And often those are exactly the leaders who pride themselves in busyness and how little sleep they need. But I think there's also another component to empathy that's maybe overlooked a bit. Now I'm working on chatbots um, and I had to realize no one actually wants a chatbot. Similarly, <laughs> as an author, I had to realize no one actually wants to buy a book or cares about your idea, right? What people care about and what they want is what can this thing do for me or what can this service do for me? What can this product do for me? And also how does it make me feel? And to understand that as business leaders or as authors or whatever, that requires empathy. But busyness and empathy are almost mutually exclusive the way I see them. So I think it's so important for us to actually step back and really think about, like put ourselves into other people's shoes. Sure, constant hustle and shoving down our ideas, people's throats might lead us to some quick sales, but in the long term is not going to generate that culture and that connection that leads to word of mouth and ultimately long-term success. So I think focusing on creativity and empathy rather than busyness is something leaders in business should take very, very seriously. I'm going to add something, Holly, that came to mind. I just felt like sharing <laughs> on a, in a recent uh, podcast interview, um, I was asked a very difficult question. and But my answer to it, I've incubated on a bit and... The question was, is now that the book's out and you've talked about it and it's resonating with people, if you were to reword it, what would it be? And I was like, oh my goodness, <laughs> uh, that's, such a, that's such a good question. And, and, and my answer to it is, if we, if we were to uh, ship uh, Time Off 2.0, um, a potential supplemental title would be, uh, why your most important work happens outside of work. Mm. Um, Speaking of the future of work and Max and I having lots of experience in, in automation, if you just look across classic practices and leisurely activities, call it your volunteerism bucket, your extracurricular bucket, your found time or free time bucket, your hobby bucket, those things that we do are deeply meaningful from helping elders, planting trees, uh, cooking a meal for uh, a group of people, uh, sharing things with our neighbors, listening and calling someone when they're deeply upset or need advice. These things that we do, quote, outside of work, provide so much value for humanity. Yeah. And we're here to say, hey, those things that fit in all those buckets, those practices, for a very, very long time, if ever, a machine or an AI algorithm is not going to do. So that stuff you currently do outside of work, good on you. That's probably the only work left um, as we automate more and more. So keep practicing it and hopefully fit more and more of it 
because not only is it nice and provides you rest and uh, replenishment, but it's actually practice for the skills of tomorrow. You know, um, so what I'm also getting from here is that choosing the path of range, practicing empathy, choosing the path of exploration are the next sort of the next big thing in your mind because over specialization and the 10,000 hours theory, because you feel that AI is actually going to be in that space. Yeah. So the AI we currently have is what researchers call narrow AI as opposed to general AI. And what that means is we have algorithms that are very, very good at very specialized tasks. And making them more general is actually a very, very difficult problem. And it's not going to be solved anytime soon. So what we have right now and what we will have for the foreseeable future are AI systems that are very good at solving very specific problems. And I think we should embrace those systems and use them to like think, where can we use them as collaborators? Where can we use them to replace our tedious, busy work? Um, but then the key still the skill that's going to be left is how do we connect these different systems and how do we connect the distant dots? Because that's what creativity is really all about. It's connecting those distant dots. And AI can be an amazing collaborator, an amazing enabler, an amazing tool to do that. But ultimately, the creative work in between those things, that's what's going to be left to us. And I mean, it's great to have specialists and specialists will be important in the future as well. But I think being the person who's in between those different things and who can connect those different things and also communicate with specialists as well as AI systems in those different domains, that will be so much more valuable in the future. And I think more people should look into this, well, kind of looking at range um, over over specialization and i think again actually empathy comes into that as well because communication is very important i've seen in so many companies that the different department especially if you think about tech and sales they're often very siloed and very separate from each other it's so valuable if you can be the person who can actually go in between those and speak both people's language and be empathetic understand their problems and then well communicate properly between those i think that also requires a certain amount of range so i'd really encourage people to think about a bit more about breadth rather than depth that and Max, uh, one one way we talked about it in the book that I found to be quite the dinner party morsel uh, when I'm talking about the future of work uh, with friends and family is our analogy we use in the book is um, in the future of work, um, it's much more valuable to be an improv jazz mm. musician yeah. than to be a specialized instrument in an orchestra. Uh, because again, the specialization uh, is more likely to be automated versus your ability to flow uh, in the future of work like an improv jazz musician is much more of what the domain will all be working in. And speaking of which, your ability to flow and Im improvise, and you can talk to literally a jazz musician or you can talk to maybe an improv actor, he or she will tell you it's all about being interesting. 
and having mm. hobbies and exposing yourself to different cultures, which again is stepping away from the actual work and going and extracting inspiration and epiphanies from elsewhere. Uh, hence, a rest ethic being an important contributor to that very skill. You know, um, you you have me thinking, you know, uh, back into my more uh, creative side, um, the the other side of the business me. <laughs> Uh, you know, I was in the jewelry industry for, for a long time as well. And I always felt that each thing that I did, um, each type of medium I undertook informed how I worked in the, in the next place. So it's creativity. Um, strangely, you, even though it's not additive, it's, it can be in a way in how it informs what you do. You mm. know? So, so for example, you know, oil painting and color theory might have really informed when I was working with gemstones and, and working with metal, but um, you know, that was, that feels like a lifetime ago. Um, let me jump um, further in the book. You um, have a, a piece on here with Derek Sivers. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, but you, you talk about, or he talks about how the world pushes us to add because it benefits them. So what happens when we remove that forced collaboration, that excessive communication? I mean, we're all like Zoom fatigued and that forced teamwork. What happens? Are, are we actually inhibiting growth? Like is our company culture's um, inhibiting growth because we're, we're trying to enforce creativity instead of cultivating it and letting it take a more natural course? Mm, that's a good question. Um, uh, very, very, very passionate topic. And, and Max, back me up here. Um, Ma- Max uh, specifically contributed uh, a chapter. I remember when reading it, I just, my soul was smiling as big as it possibly could when I, when I was reading it as we edited um, and it's called uh, Collaborative Solitude. And I'll, I'll let him speak to that. But before he does, I just um, wanted to mention, uh, shout out to the team at uh, 37 Signals, Jason Freed, one of the co-founders. They, they, they create software like Basecamp and uh, Hey, which is a new email service that I'm a fan of. Uh, they have a book that was uh, on my desk as we wrote our book as inspiration. And it's called It Doesn't Have to Be Crazy at Work. Uh, the title says it all. And, and um, uh, he, had a, he had a tweet recently when um, someone asked him why uh, he wasn't a big fan of frequent meetings and this whole on-demand uh, ASAP uh, culture, this dogma. And he's like, how can you expect someone who's being interrupted every 15, 30, 45 minutes um, frequently throughout a workday to actually get anything done? Like, like that's a, that's just a basic question. And yet it's so pervasive, this concept of just frequent interruptions. Whereas you're, you'd be amazed that like tomorrow, maybe just shut it all off, literally give yourself three hours of, of solitude to create. And at the end of the three hours, you're probably going to be exhausted and realize like that's, that's actually a more than enough time. Uh, and it was just three hours. And I uh, just wanted to say, like, I, I thought his recent tweet summarized it greatly, which was rather than him 
um, lecturing on why they run their company their way. He was just like, literally, how do you expect anyone that's being interrupted every 30 minutes with a new meeting uh, to actually ship something meaningful? Um, so that's a question I asked the, the audience to ponder on if you're contributing to, to that behavior. But Max, perhaps you educate me again, because I thought, I thought the chapter, the chapter was so amazing in the book, but I think Holly would be fascinated by this concept of collaborative solitude. Yeah. Thanks for bringing that up. I wasn't actually going in that direction, but it's really good. You reminded me of that as well. Um, what I wanted to say just briefly before to your point, I think so many companies stress the importance of innovation, but they don't actually do the hard work and think what is required to have innovation, what is required to foster a culture of innovation and creativity. And often that does require stepping back and well, pausing sometimes. And now we actually get to what John brought up, this idea of collaborative solitude. Because if you look at a lot of almost all creatives, uh, including scientists, including entrepreneurs as well, working out a business plan is a very creative uh, exercise. And all the hard work is usually done in solitude. Kevin Kelly actually said, um, artists work best alone. And there's many others who echo similar sentiments. Derek Sivers, who you mentioned, like he's very, very strong on solitude. Like he's very extreme on that. But so many great creatives, historic as well as present, they really do their work in solitude, their best work. But then it's important to actually bring that back together and Meetings are not in general bad. Communication in general is not bad. It's just how do we use them? Do we use them consciously? Or is it, again, just a form of visible busyness to look like, hey, look at me. I'm sending an email to the whole company, CCing in everyone. So I must be working really hard. I must be doing something. We need to become more conscious of how we collaborate and how we communicate. Do the hard work in solitude do the deep thinking in solitude do the really creative brainstorming exercising workshopping in solitude and then bring it get together and combine those different parts with other people the way we wrote this book is really a great example of collaborative solitude so fun fact john and i have so far never met in person the whole collaboration was virtual. You know, I saw that in your book and I was going to ask, have you finally met? No, like the whole COVID-19 kind of made that a bit more difficult with That's me being true. based in Tokyo and John in Texas. Um, but hopefully at some point soon. But yeah, a lot of the time we spend working on individual parts. I mean, the book is structured, was very, it lent itself to doing that into different deep dives, into different profiles. But then... The hard work of that was done in solitude. And then we brought it together and wove this thing into one coherent piece. And we also shared the pieces with the other person who could then again in solitude go in and do deep edits, deep thinking about it. So I think we really need to become more conscious. It's really a flow of solitude and connectedness. Often we just default to thinking connected good, solitude bad. And often we also mislabel it as loneliness. Um, but there's a huge, huge difference, actually. Um, but yeah, I, I really encourage people to become more conscious and really take their time in solitude as something valuable and as an investment into their creativity. It goes so much against 
what we're led to believe is good and valuable. It again comes back to like this historic and religious origins almost. We have this guilt associated with not working. And we have this guilt associated with looking like we're not working. It again comes to this visible busyness. Thinking in solitude can look like you're just being lazy you're just sitting on a couch you're just lying on the beach whatever but you actually might be in deep thought and a deep thought might be so much more valuable than visible busyness so i really encourage people it's not an easy exercise but letting go of that guilt associated with visible busyness investing in solitude one thing holly that i'll add uh, a lot of my workshops that i do with helping companies create not only calmer cultures, but calmer meeting cultures. There's a, there's a phrase that will summarize all of my wisdom. So uh, you're, you're saving a lot of money right now by hearing this. This is summarized knowledge. Wait, are you um, going to drop the mic and leave the I'm podcast gonna, on that no, note? No, 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 I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. But um, one, of, one of the principles that pretty much summarizes all of the transformation work that I've done is this phrase. A picture is worth a thousand words, but a prototype is worth a thousand meetings. <laughs> and yeah. if people are in more solitude, they actually have the quiet, still time. And it is usually not a lot of time. Call it two, three, four hours to produce a meaningful artifact, a mm. prototype that no word document, no email, no Slack message, no WhatsApp voice message can do justice. It is literally the thing. And when you bring that thing to a meeting, you usually don't have to have many follow-up meetings because you just tweak and have a couple of pieces of feedback on it and then back to making again. Whereas so many companies waste millions of dollars on having what feels like a productive meeting, but all it was was a meaningless status update and nothing really changed. And so by embracing more maker culture, more solitude culture, you'll have people creating more prototypes therefore actually having an artifact to center and gravitate the entire meeting around. So if you can embrace that phrase, um, you would have upgraded to being a more modern, distributed, autonomous company. And yeah, there's there's a bunch of free uh, advice. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Um, there's a part in your book, um, and, and I think it's maybe an, a good segue because it's still in talking about creating. Um, but that creating requires um, the ability to to use divergent thinking, and that divergent thinking being the skills we use to ideate and think big picture. So I'm going to play a little bit of a bad guy here because um, I think that unfortunately there's a lot of companies that are laser focused on putting strategic initiatives in place. You know, that's like you know what all companies talk about. Um, and that sometimes they're almost unattainable and at the detriment of divergent thinking. So what are your thoughts on that? When I, when I think about the angle of, of time off as it, as it applies to this, this question, is regardless of your time off practice, uh, for example, uh, some some prototyping workshops I do are highly strategic. It's all about moonshots, and sometimes it's signing up for a path that is um, a bit too ambitious. Uh, I think it's very common in innovation work. You know, shoot for the shoot for the moon. 
Um, well, Elon got there. Fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. Uh, my, my, my question is what, what could Elon achieve if he was more calm and mm-hmm. more rested? Yeah. Uh, I don't have an answer for that, but there's plenty of leaders throughout history who not only achieved great things, but they did it in a calm fashion, uh, which um, also improves your relationships. And I think often about the book, uh, The Five Regrets of the Dying, which is a lot of summarized knowledge. Uh, And uh, a top regret is that people wish they wouldn't have worked so hard. And so my time off practices help me ask the question to myself frequently, is all this hard work actually working? And you may have put together the most awesome strategic innovation plan and your, your work ethic is strong, you're prototyping, you're moving forward. But unless you detach, you can't really ask that question. And, that, and that's, that's an important thing to, to zoom out, you know, change your altitude. Uh, we talk about it uh, through the lens of uh, playfulness. Like if you look at the child's mind, it has more, and this is Alison Gopnik's research, a beautiful poetic way to look at different mindsets. Uh, she says children have a lantern consciousness, right? They're kind of illuminating everything around them, giving a 360 perspective of what's actually happening, what's actually there. And adult consciousness is more of a spotlight, super narrow, get it done, uh, hyper-focused. Both types of lighting are awesome, but if you're only fixated to one of them, then you won't know the gift of the other. Mm. So uh, for me, it's important to not only work hard on on very important uh, initiatives and and also be very strategic and shoot for the stars, but uh, you have to have an intentional oscillation. And for me, it's seeing rest and time off as a contributor uh, to your work. And we we broke down a time off in, in the creative process and only through stepping away can you unlock uh, 50% of the creative uh, process, which is incubation and illumination. And again, that can be in various scopes. It can be literally on the project. It could be across your whole company. It could be across your whole industry. You need moments of being uh, lantern focused and, and very spotlight focused, sorry, spotlight focused, but then you also need to step back and, and look at everything around to, a- to ask yourself, is all of this hard work, is all of this hard uh, uh, strategy and what we're currently doing actually relevant anymore because you know, everything's changing. And unless you, you step away and detach, you can't unlearn and unlearning allows you to, it gives space to, to, to learn. I couldn't agree more. Uh, you know, you make me think about so many different things in there. Um, I want to point out that, you know, Business has a way, companies have a way of making busyness and overwork be almost like an accomplishment. Mm. But at the same point, you know, maybe as individuals, we're guilty of it as well. You know, okay, so no. the badge of honor, yes, a lot of people like to wear this badge of honor, but are we just, have we just been on a hamster wheel of constant motion for so long that we're so overstimulated, but we're really actually bored? And mm. so we're we're confusing. Like when, when we do have this idle time to where we should be indulging in incubation, I'm sorry, incubation or rest, that 
we're we're thinking we're bored, but we're really not. We're just not allowing enough time for us to sort of ease into that space and and let that natural incubation s- sit in, you know, sink in and happen. Yeah, I think the boredom issue is a really interesting thing to discuss because I think our threshold for boredom has become so incredibly low because we're so used to being constantly connected, constantly getting inputs. So those hard things like solitude and like deep thinking and reflection and journaling, they are extremely hard just because we're not used to it at all anymore and again it all comes down to this historic baggage um, but then also more modern factors like well just the way we deal with technology and it wasn't really a conscious decision anyone made that the technology became so addictive and so distracting it just sort of happened over time but now we're so used to it that it's really really hard to step away from that i'm sure everyone knows that feeling when they're just standing in line like waiting for something and just five seconds after standing there and being bored they have this incredible urge to check their email, check Instagram or check whatever, even though they might have checked it just, I don't know, a minute before and it's absolutely nothing new. But we've become so uncomfortable with this spaciousness, this time off, this pause, that we want to drown it out with noise as soon as possible because it makes us feel very, very uncomfortable. And I don't think there's a quick fix to that. It's just something that over time, by being more conscious of the issue and also being more conscious about the value of actually sitting there with nothing, like really letting, like allowing our subconscious mind to incubate. Mm. Um, I think taking that time so seriously and valuing it as something really important we slowly need to desensitize ourselves to this constant urge for distraction one way i've come to it's been helpful for me i am shamelessly a recovering workaholic i'm very type a i like shipping i like making i could stay on my computer all day uh, because i enjoy shipping things (laughs) And, 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 and what changed, what changed for me, and I, I think Dr. Carl Jung would be uh, smiling right now hearing me say this, but, uh, and, and what triggered it was Max mentioned subconscious. And the way I think about it is inspired by Carl Jung, you know, when he says investing in your dream work, uh, was forming a pen pal relationship with your subconscious, like literally like mm-hmm. writing down big questions, things that you're, you're hoping to get answers for clarity, motivation, inspiration. And by literally your conscious intentionally communicating it that your subconscious was listening so that when you were asleep, uh, it was going to help you. It's like passing over the baton to it. And so I've thought about all my time off practices is like me delegating my, my, you know, whatever it is I am passionate about the work I'm, I'm focused on when I do my time off practice, if that's getting uh, out in nature, if that's uh, cooking a meal, if it's exercise, if it's literally going to sleep, whatever the time off practice is in that moment, I'm actually calling upon my co-founder, mm-hmm. my subconscious. Mm-hmm. Whereas if I'm always on, always doing, it's like, it's like they're there, but I'm never asking, I'm never delegating to them. It's mm-hmm. like, it'd be like if you were the only person in your company doing all the work, 
no, we all know how to delegate. We all know how important it is to delegate. And so your time off practices delegates important work to your subconscious. And if you're ignoring your time off practices, it's like you ne- you never ask it for help. Mm. There's another wonderful analogy we have in the book. I think it came originally from Michael Harris, who wrote the book Solitude. And there's a lot of very good neuroscientific evidence now for the importance of mind wandering and that a lot of big breakthrough ideas and creativity happen during times of mind wandering. And Michael Harris essentially said something like, to have your mind wander, it needs to be on a long leash, right? If you're constantly being distracted, if you're constantly jumping from browser window to browser window, if you're constantly checking your phone, you're always pulling your unconscious mind, your subconscious mind back, and you're keeping it on a very, very short leash. But to really have those big breakthrough ideas, you need to let it wander freely. And that takes space and that requires some time off and time in solitude and time to reflect. You know, I think that we have become a generation that's very uncomfortable with silence and solitude. Mm. And interestingly, I think we actually are more empathetic and more compassionate with people around us that are close to us um, in giving them that sage advice, but not practicing it ourselves. <laughs> like, like if I was talking to you, Max, and you were telling me how exhausted you were and you just worked too much and, and I'd be saying to you, you know, why don't you take a little time for yourself? Have you taken a walk today? Have you, mm. you know, journaled, you know, why don't you roll out a mat and just do a few sun salutations? You'd be like, you know, I really need to do that. Thank you. And then I'm going to go back to my desk and like be in front of my computer for 10 hours and not even taking my own advice yeah. and and also not even being like compassionate to myself. Like, oh, well, maybe I need that too. I think we're all kind of guilty of it. Like we're, it's easier to extend that hand to people and, and let them know that they need it, but then we're not so good at giving it to ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. I think Sam Harris, I can't remember what exactly he said, but essentially like if we'd all follow the advice we give to others, we would like solve all our problems basically. <laughs> well, you know, in your, in your book, you talked about um, uh, Robert Branson and um, I think he's kind of doing it. I think he kind of gets it. You know, he he trusts people. He treats them as adults. He's been working from home remotely before, you know, COVID mm. pushed us yeah. every there, every, everyone there. And he's been, you know, trusting people to get their work done when they get their work and enjoy themselves when they need to and be with their families. Like, I, th- I believe there's leaders out there that really, um, they really get it, you know, I'm... Um, I, I, we've all read and we've all said, you know, and we've all heard culture eats strategy for breakfast. Mm. Um, I really am beginning to think that culture is the strategy. And if workplaces and, and companies and people could circle around that idea that we would have a lot more happier businesses that would thrive yeah Mm. i've actually got a question for you you've talked to so many amazing leaders about company culture do you already see any patterns around their appreciation for time off for the way they build a rest ethic as a central part of their company culture any patterns you see there you know it's interesting you ask that question because 
um, you know, I'm, we always hope when we have the conversation that, that they're doing all the right things, right. That Mm. they're, they're taking their rest and they're giving that to people. Um, I actually have seen that, uh, some people doing that very successfully. Darren Murr from GitLab, he was really great um, because he had been doing remote before everybody else was doing it. It was the way he did business. And he really um, shaped his life with that in place. And I feel like, you know, from the conversations I had with him, he really has made sure to take time for family and to travel and to do things that fill his tank. Hmm. Um, and there are others. Um, you know, I spoke to this really uh, great guy, Ian Son. He's now with Hawkeye. And, you know, he started doing things that were on a creative level. He started, you know, learning guitar just for the sake of you know, stretching a a new muscle and being quiet and taking that time off for himself. Um, So yeah, I I am seeing companies do this and and I'm doing a lot of reading and and trying to find that. I think um, you highlighted uh, Ariana Huffington with Thrive Global Mm. in your book. And I think she's probably the epitome of doing that. I mean, she basically created a whole company around the concept. Um, so I, I am seeing that I'd like to see more of it. I think that, uh, there are still a lot of people who talk the talk, but don't walk the walk. Um, so I'm seeing, I'm still seeing both, but I'm hoping that, you know, people like you with great books like this really start to change that landscape. Mm, I think, I think that was one of the goals for us was, Max and I could provide all the data points to to show how essential time off and rest is, whether that's for the creative process or just for your health in general. But the book has several dozen profiles in it where we show like these are amazing leaders and creatives, company builders, artists that and scientists that they were successful through proudly being calm, proudly investing in their rest ethic. And so hopefully those, those stories aren't there to, for you to like literally copy paste into your life, but to pick up on a, on a signal. And, and the last thing I wanted to, to mention is, you know, at uh, both, both in, in time off, you know, we have c- people reaching out to us now wondering how we can help them with their company culture. And that's to be people asking that is just awesome already, like that the interest is there. But in also at my work I do with the firm Voltage Control, helping companies with their meeting culture, I, as a facilitator, I'm always looking to, to read the energy of the room, whether that's in person or, or obviously now recent uh, virtually. And some of the activities and modules I'll do in a workshop that I'm, I'm humbled excited and always surprised by i'll literally have a 30 minute to an hour session where i just allow the participants to talk about their hobbies they can share it's like show and tell and the energy shifts (laughs) to me to what the real gold of that team is because people whether it's gardening or it's their exercise or what they do in their volunteer time it's all their noble leisure that when you ask them about it 
you get to see the real them. Yeah. And I see so many leaders uh, and people who run companies who are like, oh, yes, yeah, that thing you do outside of work. Good luck trying to find. I, that's not, I don't really care. Like you do that when you have free time, but, you know, do your job. Whereas what happens when you start inviting in that genius that comes from their hobbies and realize that what they do outside of work is what makes them interesting, therefore is what makes them valuable inside of your company. So how, how can you not only honor people's outside of work interest, how can you leverage that deep passion, as, as Max mentioned with Noble Leisure, that deep meaning? How can you remix it into their responsibility, into their role, rather than, oh, yeah, we brush that aside because we're here to talk about our to-do list today? Yeah, John, that is so wonderful. And I totally agree with like elevate your hobbies and your passion projects to more than just something you do outside of work and actually talk about that stuff with your colleagues. I like to organize something called show your work events uh, at work. And everyone can do that in their own workplace, whether they're the leader of the company or someone random. It's basically get together a bunch of people, maybe get some drinks, get some snacks. It can be during work time if you can manage to do that or in the evening afterwards and have everyone present about their passion projects. It's amazing the kind of connection you build with people and it's amazing to see what weird and wonderful things are into. And it's really noble leisure kind of invited into the workplace and mixing this up together. Just like John said, like people's eyes light up and people get so passionate about stuff. And that's so valuable and you bring so much of that back to your actual work then afterwards. I agree. I think um, people, we, we are many things, right? And to be defined by our title only and just by that work that we do is so singular. And uh, it doesn't really benefit a company to block out all the things that make that person so colorful, no. right? Um, I think it's important to bring that to the table. I think it is really great uh, it's a good connection tool to because we all have so much more in common than we realize. Um, I think actually COVID has has brought that to light for a lot of companies because we're we're all in each other's living rooms right now, mm. and so the CEO might be sitting down with the sales team, um, and we're all kind of seeing each other's worlds. We're seeing, you know, the dog walk by and, you know, the kids coming in the room, asking them to come outside and play catch with them or, you know, mm. to help them with something. And in doing that, we're learning all of these other little things that people are passionate about. Obviously they're children, but, you know, maybe they're pets or doing certain activities. And then you learn that, you know, that salesperson that's on your team used to be in little league and then played, you know, in high school. And now, you know, their, their daughter wants to be on the softball team. And so they've been, he, he or she's been playing catch with them outside. And those are important elements, right? It, it shows, it shows so much diversity within the person. Like we yeah. all have so many other things that we love to do and that's what connects us. It's not always the job. Yeah, I think John mentioned it earlier. Good knowledge workers are interesting people. And if you want to be good at your job, you should be interesting. But really everyone is interesting. We often just hide those interesting parts and think, oh, we don't want to expose them to our co-workers we don't want to 
put them out there. But it's really once we open up and talk about our leisure, talk about our free time activities, talk about the volunteerism, again, John mentioned that earlier as well. I think then we really show just how interesting we are. And as a culture, as a company, we become more interesting and more creative and more valuable as a result, I think. I agree. I, I really, um, I love the direction this is all gone. I don't want to shut this down. <laughs> but uh, I love that we really dove into culture uh, along with your book uh, a lot, which is really important to our podcast because we really, I feel our audience really is dialed into that. But um, your book is amazing. And I have to be honest, I, I have written all over it in the margins and everywhere. And um, awesome. I know you guys haven't met each other yet, but when you finally get together, I want to show up and get you to sign this book. <laughs> <laughs> it was really great. And I hope our listeners will, um, will take time off and read your book and then put into practice all of the great ideas you have in there. Because I, I might want to also add to our listeners that there's a lot of tangible ideas in this mm. book. Like it, it's, it's uh, you know, J John and I, when we spoke on our first interview, um, you know, you talked about how you had your company with three months on, one month off. And you said that's not a one size fits all type of setup. And it's not, but you have so much good content in this book with so many actionable ideas that people could take away. And some of them are bite size. And we all need that because sometimes those big ideas don't really fit the culture at work or what we can make happen right now during COVID, for example. But you have some really good stuff in there. So I'm a big fan. You guys are can great. I, can I, Holly, um, I really appreciate what you're doing with leading leading a discussion on on culture and i agree it's the ultimate strategy um i'm gonna hijack the microphone for a moment and Please ask do. you and max you and max it's it's a, a question i like to ask on the time off podcast if i granted both of you the ability to five minutes from now uh, you get to decide a, a message that goes on a push notification on every cell phone in the planet what would you say in that message. Both of you get to answer this. Oh gosh, Max, you're going to have to go first. <laughs> okay. Um, I think I'll actually steal something that you already said earlier, John. Um, actually, there's two different options. The first one is something you said earlier, and it's a question, and it is, is all your hard work actually working? I think is a wonderful question. And it might seem simple at first, but if people actually take the time to think about it, the results are very, very interesting. And the second is a statement, and it's busyness does not equal productivity. So those would be my two choices. It's mm. good, Max. like that. Hmm. Well, this is a really hard one for me. <laughs> um you know, I, I'm, I'm such a, I'm, I'm a doer. I am a busy girl. So, you know, part of me wants to say, you know, take risks, allow others to take risks and encourage people to do that. But what I really should be saying is take time to breathe, um, take time to honor others that need time to breathe and um, practice empathy. Uh, we all need it, especially now. 
Yeah, my, mine would be a, a, a slogan that as a part of my daily meditation practice, I, I repeat about 20 times to myself the line, calm is contagious. Mm. Oh, that's really good. Can I go back and change mine now? <laughs> <laughs> no, we need we need all of them. Everyone, everyone, that's a, that's a good mix. But uh, th- thank you for entertaining me. I, I just love that question. That's a great question. Everyone, no. Yeah, everyone's answers are very poetic. Appreciate I love it. that. I love that. That's really great. Thank you, John. Thank you, Max. It is a thank phenomenal book. Um, I think it's going to go up there in the rankings. I hope everybody goes out and gets it. And um, again, I can't stress enough that there are big ideas in there and there are little takeaways that you can put into practice every day. And um, maybe uh, we'll, we'll put some, some ideas on LinkedIn that are maybe some smaller things that uh, people can import <laughs> daily um, when, when we post this. How's that? Can we, do you think we could do that? Absolutely. Excellent. That would be wonderful. Thank you guys. This is really great. Well, uh, we have Max in Japan, so he's just starting his day with a delicious cup of coffee because I do understand exactly. that he is the co- <laughs> he, that's a ritual for him. And uh, John, you are in uh, California right now, so maybe you're about ready to sit down to dinner. And mm-hmm. um, I'm on the East Coast, so I guess um, I might have lost my window to binge watch something. So maybe we will all um, take a few minutes of calm. And uh, we'll do some inhales and exhales together. Awesome. I love it. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks so it's much for honor. having us. Culture Factor pleasure. enjoyed having you.